How Has Alcohol Influenced Civilization? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Edward Slingerland. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today I'm speaking with Edward Slingerland. Edward is a distinguished university scholar and professor of philosophy at the University of British Columbia, where he also holds appointments in the departments of psychology and Asian studies. Educated at Princeton, Stanford, and UC Berkeley, he has taught at the University of Colorado, Boulder, the University of Southern California, and the University of British Columbia. Edward is an expert on early Chinese thought, comparative religion, and cognitive science of religion big data approaches to cultural analysis, cognitive linguistics, digital humanities, and humanities science integration. He is also the author of many things, including his second book, Drunk, How We Sipped, Danced, and Stumbled Our Way to Civilization. That will form the basis of most of our conversation today. So, Edward, we base each episode on a question and go wherever the answers and conversation takes us. Our question today is, how has alcohol influenced civilization. But before we jump right into that, on a personal note, I wanted to ask you, what got you interested in this topic? Is there a fun drunk story you have, or or is it more academic than that? Uh, Yeah, it's actually a more academic background and uh, origin story about the book. So it's it's puzzling to my colleagues. My my area of specialty is early Chinese philosophy and comparative religion. So it does seem odd that I wrote a book about alcohol. But it it actually is organically connected to my previous research. So I've got at least in at least two ways. So one way is that I have worked a lot on this idea in early Chinese philosophy called in Chinese it's called Wu Wei, uh, which I translate as effortless action. It's a state where you're, uh, you're spontaneous, you lose a sense of yourself as an agent, you're, you get lost in what you're doing, and yet you're very effective. You're charismatic. People trust you. You're very successful. And the early Chinese philosophers that I study want you to get into this state, but they face this problem. I call it the, the paradox of Wu Wei or the, the problem of how, how can you try not to try. And so my first trade book was actually about this, and it's called Trying Not to Try. So this, um, how do, if you know that spontaneity is the way to be successful. How do you consciously try to be spontaneous? There seems to be a, a tension involved there. Um, and the early Chinese thinkers came up with a bunch of different ways around this. So, you know, sitting and meditation, or do this ritual, kind of ways to get you to forget about what you're trying to do so you can uh, get kind of get tricked into being spontaneous. But it occurred to me at, at one point that... Um, the reason it's a paradox is that if you're telling yourself relax or go to sleep, the part of your brain that you're activating, pre- roughly the prefrontal cortex, is the part you're trying to shut down. So you're it's like turning on a light switch to turn off the light. It just doesn't work. Mm. Um, but it occurred to me that one way around that would be if you could take a substance from the outside that would do that job for you. So you're not trying to use your brain to shut your brain down. You're using something else to shut your brain down. And that's what made me start thinking about how cultures might use a cultural technology like a chemical intoxicant, alcohol, or some other chemical intoxicant to solve this tension of how can you try not to try. Um, We can't directly 
turn our brain down, but we can sip something delicious that will do the job for us. And so that, that was one strain. Um, the other connection is that I'm interested in, I'm interested in looking at human behaviors that we take for granted, but that if you look at them from an evolutionary perspective, seem puzzling. Mm. So my previous research, I've looked a lot uh, at the evolution, cultural evolution, genetic evolution of religion. So religion, we just take it for granted. Every You see humans anywhere throughout history, anywhere in the world, they're worshiping invisible beings and they're sacrificing to them and doing really time-consuming rituals, sometimes painful rituals. They're building enormous, enormous and useless monuments to these supernatural beings. Um, they're burying their dead with sometimes, you know, like a certain pretty high percentage of gross national product gets put in the ground like right. ancient China with dead people. Um, and it's, it's weird because it seems really wasteful. And you would think that humans who didn't do that would outcompete the humans who do. And yet that's not what we see. We see that every successful culture uh, has religion and often, you know, religion on these really large scales. Um, and so when you see something puzzling like that, you have to start to think about what are the positive functions that are being served by this behavior that pay for the costs. Mm -hmm. And, and so I've done this kind of analysis of religion and I'm basically just turning the same tool to intoxication. Why do people drink? We everywhere around the world throughout history, same thing as religion. We see people consuming chemical intoxicants. Um, but given the cost, because it is very costly, alcohol is very alcohol to focus on that is is very dangerous substance. It's it's physically physically harmful, uh, hurts your liver, raises your cancer risk, can lead to all kinds of social disorders. Um, and yet humans have been using it forever. So why is that? And mm. as I argue, my argument in drunk is that it's got to be because there are these positive functions that are paying for the costs. Right. And, and and we just don't we don't talk about those, and I, I don't think there's been a good account of what those those positive functions might be. Mm -hmm. That's interesting, and, and that's what I was going to talk to you about as well. So that's essentially the puzzle we're trying to solve. You know, use the word puzzling is like, what? Why do people drink? Indeed, if there are so many costs and so on and so forth, and and uh, we're going to get into the meat of that matter as we go along here. But but before we jump right into a couple other questions, I have you know t towards the beginning chunk of your book, you do talk about the sort of I guess to summarize sometimes social view and of course even scientific perspective on alcohol that ultimately charts it as either like you know it seems like it's sort of either like like flippantly oh yeah it's like a, you know an evolutionary mistake you know and then the social view you have people that it's like oh it's just this negative weird thing we do before we get into all, all the other stuff i wanted to know if you could sort of summarize i think calling it a consensus is misleading but i should say some of the different types of uh perceptions and scientific perspectives and so on on why we drink that you think are not telling the full story to say the least. So the standard, the standard scientific story about why we have a taste for intoxicants. So this is what you'll read in this. It is a consensus. I think it's what you would read in a psych 101 textbook is that it's an evolutionary mistake. And, and the dominant story, I think again, what you'd probably read in a textbook is that it's uh, what can be, there's different types of evolutionary mistakes. One is a, a hijack so this is where um, we're, we figure out we figure out how to trigger a, a reward system that evolved for a different to reward something else, 
we figure out a tricky way to trigger it for no good reason. <laughs> so it's like we, we discover this little pleasure center and we know how to stimulate it. And that's what alcohol is doing. Um, that's a standard story. Um, so that's why it feels good to drink. That's why, um, it gets, it's becomes physically addictive because it's triggering this reward circuit in the brain. Um, and I compare this to, you know, so this is most human vices are, are the result of evolutionary mistakes. So, uh, I talk in the book, I start the, out the book talking about masturbation because <laughs> that's right. a classic, um, that's a classic example of an evolutionary hijack, right? So we have this reward, the orgasm, that's awesome. Mm-hmm. That's like the best thing evolution can give to us. Um, and it's evolution gives it to us as great reward because it's supposed to be rewarding the behavior that it most wants us to do, which is passing on copies of our genes to the next generation. So engaging mm-hmm. in reproductive sex. Um, but humans and other organisms have figured out a way to around this, <laughs> figure out a way to get that reward for not doing the thing they're supposed to be doing. Right. Um, so engaging in all kinds of non-reproductive sex. Um, but, you know, in this case, evolution doesn't really care because it's not very costly. Those other behaviors are not very costly. Uh, and the whole system works pretty well. <laughs> People yeah. still, you know, have kids. And, um, so it, Evolution's not doesn't care about perfection. It just cares, cares about good enough, and so it's it is fine letting us get away with the stuff on the side. Um, another type of evolutionary mistake is a mismatch, and so this is where um, something was adaptive once, so we were getting rewarded for it for a good adaptive reason, but times have changed, and now it's harmful. And so the classic advice that is an example of a mismatch is our taste for junk food. So, you know, enjoying gorging on fat and sugar was very, has been a very adaptive for us for most of our evolutionary history because getting enough fat and sugar was always a challenge. So if we came, you know, came across some, we should eat as much of it as possible. Um, but, you know, rel- very recently, really, uh, we've started living in these urban environments where we have, you know, 7-Elevens and we can go in and load up on, you know, ice cream and Slim Jims. And, right. um, and when you can do that, then this, this taste becomes very costly, you know, leads to obesity, diabetes, all these problems. Um, so this is a costly mistake. Unlike masturbation, it's actually very costly, um, but it's, it's recent. So it's, it's mm-hmm. a recent problem, and it's actually still pretty geographically constrained in the sense that there, there are still lots of places in the world where getting enough calories is a challenge for people. So this is a case where it's costly but recent, mm-hmm. and evolution just hasn't had time to deal with it. Um, what I argue in drunk is that in the case of our taste for intoxication, it's like neither of those vices. So unlike masturbation, it's very costly. And unlike junk food, it's ancient. We've been doing it for a really, really long time, at mm-hmm. least 20,000 20, years, probably much longer, um, which is plenty of time for evolution to do something about it. So, mm-hmm. so the fact that it's costly and ancient means it can't be a mistake or it would have been dealt with. And so, so what's going on then? Well, there's got to be these adaptive benefits that are paying for the cost. And so that's where I think our scientific um, discussion of intoxication and our taste for intoxicants has, has just been wrong, frankly. Um, so, and there have been some mismatch theories about alcohol. So um, running around out there, there's like this dirty water hypothesis that it was adaptive to have a taste for beer because in 
for most of our history, drinking water has been unsafe because, you know, we didn't know about sanitation. And, and it is true that if you take contaminated water and you ferment it, it becomes potable. So you can safely hydrate with beer in places where you can't drink the water. Um, but this is, it's just, so none of these mismatch theories really make sense. With the dirty water hypothesis, um, if you have dirty water, the other way to, to sterilize it is just to boil it. Right. Right? It's a lot faster and more direct way to do it than um, this very elaborate process of fermenting it into a liquid neurotoxin. Um, so, so I also kind of go through and debunk the various mismatch theories that have been proposed. So, so it's not an evolutionary hijack, and it it can't be any of these type of evolutionary mismatches. Mm-hmm. And and yeah, and exactly as you said, you know, before I, I dive into a couple more questions about the uh, the sort of I guess social and civilizational elements of the discussion, I kind of want to cap off this section here because I think that was a great sort of background on sort of the stories that you don't think quite tell you know the whole tale. Um, in, in that section, one line I liked is at, at some point you kind of just say like, you know, talking about alcohol and also other substances as well, you, you kind of have thrown a little fun concluding statement at the end of one section that go, you know, we are animals built to get high. So is that really the ultimate physical, like before we move on to social and civilizational, is that ultimately this sort of the physical explanation, like genetically speaking, that's what we're built to do. It's, it is the story in the sense that we're pre-adapted to use alcohol. So we are descended from primates who became fruit eaters at a certain point. And like a bunch of other species, including bird, some bird species that, that eat fruit, we developed the physiological machinery to detoxify ethanol. You know, alcohol, the, the actual molecule is ethanol. Um, so we have the machinery to detoxify it, and we have a taste for it which clearly, you know, at some point was partly about getting calories, right? Um, so, yeah, we're kind of predisposed, we're pre-adapted to use alcohol. But then, you know, once we get caught up in this whole uh, transition from hunter-gatherer lifestyle to civilization, um, that that gets, re- our, our relationship to alcohol becomes much more intense and intimate than when we were just occasionally eating overripe fruit that we found on the floor right floor yeah yeah and 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 um and and how how far back i mean i know the book and i'll say to listeners again of course the book goes into more details here we're just tracing things at a high level but generally speaking how far back did you find indications in your research of people not only drinking but enjoying other other substance adventures if you will so the earliest kind of indirect evidence we have is a twenty thousand year old carving of a woman who's got a horn held to her mouth and some accounts say that it's about a music performance. Um, but if she's blowing the horn, she's holding it the wrong way. <laughs> she's got the wide <laughs> end toward her and it's above her. And she's clearly like downing something from, yeah. a, from a horn. Um, we obviously don't know what it is, but it's really unlikely that some artists thought it important to document a woman drinking water. Right. She's drinking something festive. It's a, it's a significant activity, which means it's alcohol um, or it's some kind of intoxicating beverage, maybe something with hallucinogens mixed in. Um, so that's indirect, um, but it's still pretty pretty strong um, evidence that people were, were consuming mind-altering substances in liquid form at that point. The first direct evidence we have is now the latest is 13,000 years ago in present-day Israel. Um, we have direct evidence, um, chemical residues, and evidence of beer making. 
So, so for at least 13,000 years and probably much longer. Excellent. And as, as far as what creatures we are now moving beyond the purely physical, when we get into social discussions and behavior, um, you know, and so I guess ultimately we'll, this is kind of the, the micro social, if you will, that I'm trying to sort of split into before we get to civilization, if you will. But you kind of explore in one section how we are creative, cultural, and communal animals. Um, can you first explore this a bit for our conversation here, and then then we'll get into how all this ties into sort of a need to, uh, you know, um, in- inject controlled doses of chaos into our lives, as one, as one quote you said, which I thought that was very good. But, but can you sort of talk about sort of us as um, not even that civilizational being just yet, but sort of from a, from a sort of smaller micro-social perspective, what kind of things do we learn in your book about, about our relationship with alcohol and, uh, and each other, really? Well, if, if you want to understand the adaptive functions of alcohol, you have to understand the adaptive challenges that we face as a species and understand that you have to understand our particular ecological niche. So we're a weird, we as as primates, we occupy this really weird niche. Um, So we, unlike any other species in the world, we're completely dependent on tools and technology. So, so much so that our bodies have changed, right? We, our teeth, our jaws, our digestive tracts have all, are all adapted to eating cooked food. We could no longer survive on raw food. Um, we're, we're adapted to eating pre-digested food. So we need fire. It's the most basic technology we've always had. Um, but that's a, just the beginning of it. We really, um, human, every human society has really complex set of technology tool sets that it requires to survive in the environment it's in. These tool sets have to be constantly updated um, it, the environment's changing. We're competing with other social groups who, if they have better tools than us, they're going to outcompete us. So there's this, uh, unlike, again, any other species, we're dependent on creativity. So that's one of the C's. We need to be creative. We have to keep adapting, coming up with new tools. Um, we're also communal. Um, so we we are not, there's this kind of myth um, you know, you see in the European enlightenment of kind of, you know, humans in the state of nature are kind of wandering around on their own. And then they meet in a clearing and shake hands and decide right. to form a society. Um, and, you know, that's behind a lot of kind of, frankly, libertarian myths about individualism. This is true. Yeah. Um, uh, and it's just, it's absurd anthropologically, biologically. Humans have always been communal. We're completely helpless alone. Um, that's the reason we're, we're incredibly adapted to social living. A lot of our cognitive machinery is for figuring out other people and decoding emotions and intentions. Um, the worst thing you could do to a person is put them in solitary confinement. I mean, people go insane when they're deprived of social contact. Mm-hmm. So we, we we're completely dependent on others, but that means we have to figure out how to, how to cooperate. And so we, we, and we cooperate on this amazing scale for primates. Um, we're cooperating with strangers all the time. So we're cooperative um, and we're cultural. So we're, we're passing down these sets of knowledge, ways to do things, um, toolkits, uh, methods for detoxifying food or finding food. Um, we're, we're dependent on all these things. And so understanding what kind of organism we are helps us to see why alcohol might be a tool that helps us 
respond to some of these these challenges. Mm-hmm. And um, it's just a little early yet as far as the time, but I'm going to do it now because we're going to tumble into a bunch of other things in just a second. So we're going to take a quick break uh, and we're going to be right back. So everyone, you're listening to Curious Task. I'm speaking with Edward Slingerland today. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send questions, feedback, guest recommendations, or anything else that's on your mind to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. As always, a huge thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Joe Aragona, Peter Jaworski, and Yakov Mikhailovich. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at The Curious Task, rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task, and check out the Institute for Liberal Studies. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Curious Task and speak with Edward Slingerland today. So, Edward, I think the, the first uh, half of the conversation was great. We talked about human beings sort of at that, what are we, from almost like a physical genetic level. And then we started getting into that sort of so- social level as far as what kind of creatures are we. Now I want to get onto that 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 big word civilization, you know, right in the namesake of, of your book there. But before I ask some details about this, though, I... What do you, it's going to sound like a silly question, but I think it's important to just hear your thoughts and your own words about it. What do you mean by the fact we sort of sipped, danced, and stumbled our way to civilization? You know, for the sake of this conversation, what did you mean when you sort of positioned that whole idea that way? Do you mean just, you know, that we became more, more civilized? Or what's really at the core of, of this claim? Well, quite literally, the claim is that intoxication led to civilization. So... The standard story, again, I, I'm trying to debunk the standard scientific story about why we have a taste for alcohol, arguing that it's not an evolutionary mistake. I'm also arguing against this idea that the discovery of alcohol was a mistake. So the, the standard story you're going to read in the textbook is, you know, we had agriculture and we're making food. And then at some point, someone left their sourdough starter out a little bit too long and it fermented and we had beer. Um, so, so our discovery of alcohol is always um, presented as an accident and as a byproduct of civilization, of agriculture. But in the book, I'm looking at this uh, body of archaeological evidence that suggests that it's actually the other way around. Uh, so this is the so-called beer before bread hypothesis, that um, you see that human beings were getting together, making beer or fermenting wine, and having these massive festivals way before agriculture. So thousands and thousands of years before agriculture got started. And in fact, it seems like the first, when you look not just in the Fertile Crescent, but if you look around the world, the first domesticated species seem to have been chosen for their psychoactive properties, not for their nutrition value. Um, mm. So I talked about, for instance, Teosinte in South America, was uh this that's the wild ancestor of maize of corn but it's a terrible grain like you you can't make tortillas out of it um you would never even notice this plant if what you were looking for was some kind of starchy food um what it is good for is making beer because it's got this sugary starchy um stem that you can uh, ferment and make chicha which is still uh, what they do with maize these days in South America. Um, so you see this around the world that the, these first species we seem to focus on and settle down and start cultivating, we're doing it to get 
high. <laughs> We're doing it to get intoxicated. And then only afterwards do we start to think, oh, well, maybe we can make bread from this stuff too. Um, so it, it really, in this sense, there's, it quite literally is the case that our desire to get intoxicated is what lured hunter-gatherers into a settled lifestyle. And that, in turn, is what gave rise to civilization. And not to put it too flippantly lightly, but literally the the idea that you can kick back and have a little drink and go a little farther than that adds <laughs> people people settle down as as you would say, um, and and ex, and extending the the story from there. And again, I am trying to sort of wrap our arms around sort of what again I'll say. There's a lot discussed in the book, you know. So we talk from the hunter gatherer as, as you did your research be, beyond that, as we get to more quote unquote advanced forms of civilization and so on and so forth. How and again, I know it's very tough, but what are the kinds of things you found um, evolving, if you will, with uh, different civilizations' relationship with alcohol? You know, it seems that it's very common across cultures that people bonded over it, uh, you know, whether it's domestic strangers or foreign strangers. You know, um, if I recall correctly, because uh, I made a note about it here, you know, some, I think you even found some culture use actually like a, a beer vat, or at least one did, as a symbol of social gathering and trust, not necessarily sort of... Uh, you know, drinking per se. Can you elaborate on this type of idea, like in the kinds of things we find cross-sectional across, like, you know, as time goes on, if you will? Yeah. So the, I talk about several adaptive functions. So the bulk of the book is kind of laying out both what these functions are and also just documenting how you see this happening in, in different cultures throughout history. The two main, there's a few of functions, but the two main ones, um, the first one is creativity. So there's, again, cross-culturally throughout history, you see this association of alcohol and other intoxicants with artists and poets and creative types. And it, that's not a myth. Um, so we, uh, the, the prefrontal cortex, the center of executive function, cognitive control in the human mind, is really important. So it's what allows us to stay focused on task. It's what allow it's allowing me right now to focus on my argument and to show up on time for things, and we need it as adults. But it also um, limits. One way to think about it is that it's like a laser beam focused on something, but because of that, we don't see things in our periphery. Um, we're not seeing things that aren't directly in our line of sight, and sometimes we create what creativity is about is seeing in that broader way, connecting things that are not obviously connected, um, seeing things in a completely new way. The PFC interferes with that. It's good for focusing. It's not good for creativity. And so one function of alcohol, one of the physiological effects of alcohol is to downregulate the PFC, basically turn it down a few notches. And so I review uh, both direct and indirect evidence, scientific evidence. This results in enhanced creativity. So this is why when people need a creative breakthrough, they will turn to an intoxicant like alcohol. And then in terms of group innovation, it's kind of doubly helpful because individually you're becoming more creative. You're, you're able to engage in what psychologists call lateral thinking, so seeing connections mm -hmm. between things um you're also disinhibited because inhibition is one of the things that pfc does um you're just you're disinhibited so when you come up with a new idea you're also more likely to just blurt it out when maybe you know if your pfc were fully functioning 
you would say, oh, that's a dumb idea and you'd be you know, shy about sharing it. So people share information more when they're a little drunk and they're coming up with new ideas more. So it's both leading to enhanced individual creativity and group innovation. So that's one big function. Uh, the other function has to do with getting past these cooperation dilemmas. So humans often, in our everyday lives, we don't typically notice it, but we're constantly facing <clears throat> versions of what economists call the prisoner's dilemma. So these are cooperation scenarios where um, <clears throat> if I follow my own narrow self-interest, I'm going to get a worse payoff than if I trust you mm -hmm. and we we pursue our common interest together. Um, the problem is I have to trust you because if I say, okay, I'm not going to pursue my selfish interest and you pursue your selfish interest, I'm screwed. <laughs> so it's, right. I get the worst, the worst payoff is if I trust and I get betrayed. And so rational, completely self-interested rational agents can't solve the prisoner's dilemma. Um, the only rational strategy is to not cooperate. And yet human beings solve the prisoner's dilemmas all the time in daily life and on a large scale and small scale. Because prisoner's dilemma is involved in like helping a friend move a couch. You know, it's not like mm -hmm. these kind of existential, you know, right. high stakes games that we're doing right. all the time. Uh, and so how do humans solve this? It's that we learn to trust each other. But how do we trust without getting taken advantage of? We've developed all these mechanisms for evaluating the trustworthiness of other people. Um, we use kind of body language, facial expression, tone of voice. But this also sets up a kind of evolutionary arms race where um, if I can be, if I'm really good at faking commitment to you, if I can convince you that I'm really a good friend and you can trust me um, and get you to move my couch, and then, but I'm not a good friend, and then I don't bother to help you when you move. That's the best right. payoff for me, right? <laughs> so you're gonna, there's going to be this arms race between people getting better at faking commitment and people getting better at detecting fakers. Um, and and the human ability to ass assess other people in an instant, this kind of thin slicing that we do, is really, it would seem supernatural to a chimpanzee. Mm -hmm. And it seems to have all the hallmarks of these kind of extreme traits that tend to be uh, the result of runaway um, cultural arms race, essentially. So, you know, kind of like cheetahs and gazelles run much faster than they really should. It's kind of wasteful. But if I'm a gazelle, I can't, you know, there's no say, wait, time out. Let's not right. waste time getting faster. If I'm not faster, I'm going to get eaten. Right. Um, so, so humans have this really remarkable ability. Um, but cultures in this arms race, cultures are not just, disinterested bystanders. They want to help the cheater detectors because they want cooperation to work. And so one way to tip the balance is to make it harder to cheat. And alcohol is a great tool for that. So um, depressing function of the PFC. If my PFC is, uh, if I'm going to, if I want to lie to you about something, it's, I need my PFC in prime working order because lying is actually a very cognitively challenging task. I have to keep in my mind at the same time what I'm telling you is the truth and what mm. I know is the truth. I have to keep them separate. I need to suppress emotional expressions and reactions that go along with the true truth and not the truth I'm telling you. 
um, it's really hard. So um, if I start drinking, I'm going to get really bad at that because my I need my PFC for that. Right. Um, so it's basically like a kind of truth serum. Um, it gets harder for people to lie when they're a little bit drunk. Um, another function of alcohol is it's uh, boosting these kind of feel-good social hormones that we have, so serotonin, endorphins, which, first of all, make it less likely for us to lie. We don't even want to lie because we're feeling good. We're feeling more pro-social. Um, and it's also making us just feel bonded with other people. These are Some of these hormones are the ones involved in kind of parent-child bonding and um, and partner, sexual partner bonding. And so um, it's a, it, alcohol is a powerful tool for kind of enhancing trust through cognitively disarming other people. So in the same way we shake hands when we meet to show we're not carrying a weapon, if I sit down with you and we do a couple of shots, it's like I'm taking out my PFC and putting it on the table and saying I'm unarmed <laughs> cognitively. Mm-hmm. You know, you can trust me. Um, plus, it's making me feel really good about you. I'm, I'm liking you more because these hormones are being stimulated. So it's been a crucial tool for getting otherwise um, suspicious and potentially um, competing strangers to put down their weapons and trust one another. Mm-hmm. And and it's interesting I'll I'll take the other side of this for a second just to add like a, an interesting note cuz I suppose it's also also worth noting that you know um th- that there are tons of forms as your book traces of uh cultures looking at it the other way I mean there there are of course uh, pros if you will to everything you're talking about but cons as well to consumption in the sense that it seems like there there were point time points in time where you you found that you know cultures were either discouraging alcohol consumption completely or at least in encouraging moderation so it seems like there, there's also that recognition in your research that you know um the, the classic too much of a good thing so to speak right Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So all cultures have realized that all cultures that use alcohol are worried about it at the same time. Um, that's the reason you see attempts at prohibition um, popping up throughout history. Um, it's why you see the use of alcohol being hedged with all sorts of ritual norms. So you don't just, unlike, there's very few ritual norms typically around drinking water. You know, you get thirsty, you just drink some water. No one makes a big deal out of it. No one's yeah. monitoring your water drinking. No one cares. Um, people care about alcohol consumption. Um, yeah, historically, it, you never had private access to alcohol. Um, alcohol was always something that was always consumed ritually, communally. Um, they're typically very strong taboos and ritual norms about how much you can drink, when you're allowed to drink, how much you're allowed to drink. And so, and this is, these are clearly, um, again, kind of from a cultural evolutionary perspective, they're adaptive traits. They're, they're ways to, because what cultures want to do is capture the benefits of alcohol while also kind of mitigating the downsides. Mm -hmm trying to avoid paying too much in costs. And and this is how we do it is by not using alcohol in a way that's constrained in various ways. If I remember correctly, and I didn't note it, so you, of course you'll, if you, um, you'll be able to correct me, but if I remember, if there was either, was it a Greek uh, play or poem or something like that where they actually specify, you know, three cups is good kind of thing. You know, one's for this, one's for this, two's for that, three's for that, four too much kind of thing. Yeah, <laughs> the Greeks, you know, the Greeks the symposium, you know, the wine gathering 
was highly regulated. So the symposiarch, the person who was the host, um, was in charge of mixing, deciding how strong to make the water-wine mixture. So the Greeks watered down their wine um, and was in charge of deciding when to pass it around. So you couldn't drink mm. until the thing got passed around. And if, if everyone's getting too drunk, I'm going to wait a little bit before I pass that around again. Right. Um, or I'm going to put a little more water in it this time. Um, same thing with Chinese culture, both ancient and modern um, at banquets. You, you don't drink at will. You only drink when someone makes a toast. And who is allowed to make a toast and um, how often is all ritually dictated. So this is another way to control people's drinking. Yeah. Um, and even in what seem like very informal modern situations, like if you and I go out with some other people to a pub um, and you, d- you down your beer right away, you got to wait <laughs> to get another beer because we're going <laughs> to, you have to wait till we're all done because then we're going right. to order another round. Um, and you don't think of that as kind of a consumption control mechanism, but it is. But it is, yeah. People, people dog on each other all the time. Either you know, like a, you know, speed up, which has its pros, pros and but also cons. But also, hey, buddy, slow down, kind of thing. We're on only our first round. Like you don't think of this stuff in this context. We have this kind of conversation. It's very interesting, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And even informal cues, you know, you, you know, you're reaching for the wine bottle, and you know, your wife kind of gives you a look, like, really, you need to, maybe you should. In a in a glance, someone can say to you, "Maybe wait before you pour yourself another glass." Right? Yeah. And so um, there's all these social cues that people use, and they're often unconscious, right, to, mm-hmm. to moderate each other's drinking, or in an unhealthy culture to egg each other on. And so right. that's where cult- the culture really matters, right? And I talk mm-hmm. in the book about healthier and less healthy drinking cultures. So mm-hmm. um, southern what anthropologists refer to as Northern versus Southern European drinking cultures. Um, Southern cultures like Italy is the example I'm most familiar with. Um, You know, alcohol, they're drinking mostly beers and wines. You're drinking always in the context of a meal around a table. So it's, you know, in the context of food, uh, everyone's involved, old people, young people, men and women, children. So kids get a little bit of wine watered down, you know, with their meal. Mm-hmm. Um, drinking to the point of being visibly drunk is really frowned upon. Like it's kind of shameful. Um, and, and in cultures like this, what you see is, even though it's probably the case at about just across the world, about 15% of a given population is probably prone to alcoholism genetically you see very low rates of alcoholism in southern cultures like italy in italy they actually consume per capita i think the most alcohol (laughs) but they have the lowest alcoholism rates because Mm -hmm. they have this healthy drinking culture um and you contrast that with northern drinking cultures so this is northern europe eastern europe you know russia um, and this gets exported to the americas uh drinking is focused on distilled spirits you drink a lot of hard liquor it's often men in groups alone, uh, unmixed groups, you know, drinking and drinking just to drink. They're not eating food with it. Mm-hmm. They're, and they're drinking to get drunk and it's, they're egging each other on and they're being visibly drunk is the goal. <laughs> it's actually, if you're not visibly drunk, right. you're, you're not one of the guys, you're not cool. Um, and when you have cultures like that, that's when pathological drinking can happen quite easily. And so in cultures like that, you see, much higher rates of alcoholism. So the 
there's there's better and worst ways to incorporate alcohol into your social life and some cultures do a better job of it than others mm-hmm. and as i'm just keeping on the clock here we're heading to sort of the, the final swing of our time if you will i'm gonna move us ahead to sort of a, a bit of a discussion about sort of the modern world if you will you know you, you of course the, the main chunk of your book is focused on the kinds of things you're just talking about but in the last part you talk about basically the present day um, you know, sometimes we all forget that we're just existing in a speck of time too, and we'll all be history. So I think it's interesting to spend a bit of time on, on what's happening right now. What kind of in- interesting observations and notes would you like to highlight for the sake of our conversation today that you have about, you know, our sort of current relationship status with alcohol, if you will, or, or, or intoxication more generally, what kind of through lines do you find are interesting to note? Yeah. Okay. This was happening hundred thousand, whatever years ago. Um, but now we're, uh, now we're here. So what kind of interesting sort of dots do you feel like we can actually connect up with as far as your observations of today? I think today we have an odd relationship with alcohol, especially in, um, in kind of America, let's say, um, Northern European countries, we have this um, love-hate relationship toward alcohol. We use it, but we were suspicious of it. <laughs> and I think part of that is because I think that our current way we talk about alcohol is wrong because we look at it purely through a medicalized lens. Mm. So when you look at public discourse on alcohol, it's all in a medical context and it's all focused on the physiological impact of alcohol, Mm -hmm. which is negative. So, you know, the, these are the two kind of big articles that came out, the Lancet over the last few years, um, the British medical journal, one concluded that the, the only safe level of alcohol consumption is zero. So basically no one should drink. Um, there's a more recent one that suggests that, um, for people over 40, maybe there are some slight benefits. Um, and basically, it was kind of like, once you're over 40, you're, you're pretty much dead, so you might as well <laughs> enjoy a little alcohol. Uh, but young people should definitely not drink alcohol was the conclusion of this, this much more recent Lancet study. Um, but again, this is all just looking solely at physiological impact. And so one of the things I'm trying to do with drunk is get us to move beyond just the medicalized lens and see the whole spectrum of impacts of alcohol in our lives, which is when you do that is going to include the individual and social benefits. So I think that up to now we've been flying blind when we've been talking about alcohol, because we just, we've had the wrong idea about why we drink, like what the, what the origin and reason for our taste for intoxication is. We've been wrong about kind of how alcohol was discovered and it's kind of the importance of it to civilization. And I think most, most people have had a kind of inchoate, like a implicit sense that alcohol had some functions, but I don't think it's been spelled out well. And so people are kind of not good at defending why they drink and they don't Mm. really have good, they're not, they're not articulate about the way, why they're using alcohol. So, so what I'm hoping to do with drunk is lay out what all these other functions are so that then as an individual or as an organization, you can make a decision about, you know, whether, cause it could be the case that you look at the positive effects, creativity, bonding, all this great stuff, but you still say, Nope, <laughs> you know, the costs are too high and I don't want to use alcohol personally, or I don't want alcohol in my organization. And that's a rational decision you could make. 
but it's only a rational decision if you've got all the information at your disposal. Right. And so, and so I, I think that, um, one thing I'm hoping drunk will do is change the public discourse around alcohol and make it more intelligent and just more grounded in science, in science and anthropology and history. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, throughout the book, you do present this this whole discussion as 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 you go along as a discussion of sort of um, number one understanding and actually understanding what the heck's happening, but also and has happened, but also as a discussion of ultimately pros and cons. So you know, I definitely encourage everybody. Um, you know, to, to obviously number one, check out the book, but also number two, like really keep that in mind that that's really what's happening there. You know, f- from this conversation, we're tracing it at a high level, but it, you know, Edward does a good job going into the sort of that pros and cons balance as he goes through it. You know, uh, just focus on the cons for just a second, though. You know, there there are ob- there are obviously a lot of dangers with alcohol, and of course, you know, being an alcoholic, for example. Um, but one one I wanted to highlight because in the section about our modern relationship with alcohol and so on and so forth. And and uh, because I found it, it's a very, it was very interesting. It felt, at least to me as a, as a reader, as like one of the keys to the whole discussion at the end. And I kind of applied it backwards that one of the things that you actually had as a subhead in the book was uh, the, this this point of of drinking alone, right? And and how that is, so, you know, that's a very that's a very dangerous thing actually for you know for a variety of people. You know, has a lot of cons to it. Number one, but number two, it also often you know leads to people like you know. Uh, that that's kind of how alcoholism often starts with with many people, not all. But um, you know, is is that kind of idea sort of you feel like maybe maybe that was just me that I pulled that thread out of it and I'm making a mountain of a molehill. But I kind of wanted to throw that at you. I was excited to talk to you about that specifically here. That like, do you feel like that's kind of a very interesting key to the discussion too? Because to me, it's like again this idea if alcohol is truly a social and 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 civilization builder, right? And people are doing things together, moderating each other. Like we're, you know, as you said, quite literally, it builds civilization. It's this idea of I kind of took the extreme. If you could picture a bunch of alone drinkers, like it's like the flip side's like an, a civilization destroyer, a social destroyer. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Yeah. No, uh, drinking alone is really dangerous um, and his, historically un, unprecedented. So. You know, like I said, having private access to alcohol has been very rare historically. Um, and now suddenly in the modern world, we have this situation where, um, you know, I can take my truck through a drive through liquor store and have it loaded up with a bunch of vodka and take that back to my house and have access to that anytime I want. Mm-hmm. That's crazy. <laughs> it's just really, um, it's not, it's not something we've had to deal with before as a species. Um, and then when you combine that, the other new danger we face, so I talk about isolation, this problem of drinking alone, and distillation, the fact that only relatively recently, like the past few hundred years, which in an evolutionary time frame is yesterday, um, we figured out how to get past the limits of natural fermentation. So for most of our history, alcohol has come with a safety feature, which is that it wasn't that strong. You know, we were drinking relatively weak, kind of two to three percent beers, ABV beers, maybe slightly stronger fruit wines. Um, and then with distillation, though, you fi- we got around the limits of natural fermentation, and we created these incredibly powerful liquors that can be in the nineties ABV, like ninety something percent alcohol by volume. Um, it's still only ethanol, but it's so much stronger that it really should be considered a different drug. I think. And it, um, you know, I argue in the book that most of the benefits from alcohol come at moderate levels of intoxication. So about 0.08 blood alcohol content 
So right about when you shouldn't be driving a car is when you get these creativity benefits and trust benefits and things. Um, if you're drinking two to 3% ABV beer, you could drink all night and never surpass 0.08. Mm. Um, but if you're doing shots of tequila, you can, you can blow right past 0.08 into really dangerous levels of intoxication right. in a half an hour, you know? Um, and so, yeah, so the modern world is particularly dangerous for alcohol use because of these two, these two aspects of modern life. We, we drink more alone in isolation without all the social protections we used to have. And we have access to this really dangerously potent new form of alcohol. Mm. And I want one last question before we head to the formal wrap up, which is that, which is really about ultimately where, where you, you come down on the, on the whole discussion, obviously, uh, you know, in, in the book as, as well as, uh, you know, after you do the historical discussion and trace all that, and you also touch on the modern world, uh, you know, I, I ultimately, it does seem to be that not, I don't want to say the right view on it, but something that gets us closer to the truth almost, if you will, is really like the point of view of moderation is what I pulled from the book, right? Like, you know, I like the, the quote I, I wrote down here for my notes is that we, we should really neither, you know, view alcohol ultimately and, and, you know, this, this whole concept of drinking ne- neither through the, the cheery, the lens of cheery new age ascetics or the dour neo- neo-Puritans. So I thought, thought that was a nice little snippet, but sort of, I, w- I wanted you to like elaborate a bit on that in your own words before we left off today. Cause it seems like that's, that's really the, o- the overall message. Of course, first understand it actually, that's what the book does. But then where we come down is sort of that, you know, cliche, but that sort of middle of the road approach, it seems. Yeah, no, that's all cultures have kind of landed on that as a solution. Let's drink but drink in moderation with these social controls in place. Um, there may be a role for occasional um, benders, occasional really ecstatic experiences. Typically, cultures have done that with other intoxicants, so things like psychedelics that really kind of seriously disconnect you from reality. And there are probably benefits to that, doing that occasionally. Um, but yeah, all the all the all most of the benefits that I'm talking about really kick in at very moderate levels of intoxication and it's the kind of one two beer um uh level and and all the once you get beyond that um things can go really sideways really quickly because <laughs> alcohol is really it's 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 a dangerous substance not just because it's physiologically harmful it's really physically addictive um it's up there with kind of you know certainly nicotine mm. um in terms of just making you physically dependent um, and again, as I said, you know, there's a considerable portion of the population that just can't drink safely. They have a genetic propensity to, to go to excess. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, a, a, appreciate Dionysus. I feel like we should be like the Greeks, you know, they worshiped Dionysus as a God and honored him, but they were also really, they were a bit worried about him. <laughs> they were aware that, you know, he three could cups, three good cups. animals. Yeah, three cups, that three cup poem, right? You know, right. you got to know, um, you got to know how to capture the benefits without falling off the cliff um, of right. excess. And, and that's hard to do with alcohol because of what it's like as a drug. Mm-hmm. Well, Edward, I'm going to move us to our formal wrap-up now. Our time is pretty much up. You know, we've talked about a lot uh, in each episode. I want to make sure that the guest ultimately has the last word. So let's try and bring the conversation full circle and put a finer point on our exploration of the question today. So let me ask you, what what do you ultimately hope are the main takeaways for someone listening to you here on how alcohol influenced and influences 
civilizations. You know, all that to say, if you wanted someone to leave listening to us here with one, two, or just a few takeaways, if anything, what would you like them to take away? So our taste for alcohol is not an evolutionary mistake. It's actually had an adaptive function for human beings. It's played a crucial role in allowing us as a species to make the transition from hunter-gatherer lifestyle to small-scale and then large-scale societies. And these functions are not out of date. It's still, it's continuing to play important functions for us in our modern life in terms of creativity, trust, um, all of these things. So it's a tool. It's a, it's a cultural technology that we use strategically for certain purposes. And being able to understand what those purposes are, it gives us a way to figure out what the appropriate place for alcohol is in our lives. Um, so unless you're um, someone who can't use alcohol safely, um, make a decision about, you know, what's the place of alcohol? When do you want to use it? Um, get beyond this just purely medicalized lens of just looking at alcohol in terms of its physiological impact. And, you know, as I said, worship Dionysus, but beware of him. <laughs> Realize that he's a dangerous kind of two-faced God and he can mess with you. Um, and I think if you, if you keep all these things in mind, it is a, it's a very powerful tool that can be used to enhance uh, both our individual and social lives. Mm-hmm. I think that's a great place to leave it. And as I've said a couple times throughout our conversation today, I definitely uh, you know, encourage everybody to look up Edward Slingerland and his book Drunk. I think it's great. I think you'll enjoy it if you if you go uh, buy it and, and read it through. And it, it'll inform maybe your decision about where alcohol fits in your life when you're a bit more educated about it. So I think that it was, it, it was a great book. So Ed, Edward Slingerland, thank you very much for joining me on The Curious Task today. No, thanks for having me. It's fun. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. This episode was produced by Alex Aragona, Sabine Elchidiak, and Eric Segain. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you hear on the podcast is by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona, and thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task.